Good morning. Liam's story, the guy on this video, reminds us that a defining moment can change a relationship and can change a life just like that. I mean, Liam wakes up one day and he's pretty convinced that there isn't a God. He's so depressed that he's thinking all about killing himself that day. And he goes to bed the very same day convinced there is a God. Because he prayed to this God and this God answered his prayer, sending some guy named Isaiah to a basketball court to tell him about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And his life was forever changed. We've been hanging out in this verse and going to continue for another couple of weeks. 316, the numbers of hope. The rhythm of this verse is that God loves, that God gave, that we need to believe, and in believing we have life, we live. And today we're going to to move from the, the proclamation of God's love, that he loved the world, to the demonstration of it. He proved it. Through the cross, his son hanging on the cross. And I don't know where you are today, but I have a feeling that there's still a bunch of us that are struggling with the fact that God could love us. Maybe we're struggling because we're still stuck in the paradigm of how we love each other, and it's so conditional. We love when and if, and if when and if isn't happening, it's just really to, easy to pull back and not love. And God's love just isn't like that. And it's just hard to imagine that a God could know everything about us, know all that we've done, and still love us, still love me. For some, though, I think it's the hard things that we're going through, and it's those feelings that we talked about last week that just kind of well up and start shouting that that. How could God love us when we hurt this much? How could God love us when we're going through these kinds of things? And and our feelings start painting a different reality, a different picture of who God is. And we begin to believe our feelings, not the truth of God's word. And so I'm hoping today is a defining moment kind of day for you. A, A day where maybe you just are opened up in just a small way to saying, Maybe there is a God who loves me. And maybe Christ is his one and only son. And and maybe I need to move from just believing about these things intellectually to to start believing in such a way that it's foundational to who I am at the core of who I am. And I live it out throughout this life that I have, not just parts of my life. Well, the very fact that the scripture tells us that God is, gave his one and only son, reminds us that Christ's life, his death, is not an accident. And you can read the history of Christ in the Gospels, and you kind of conclude that, you know, maybe he just ran into some opposition. Maybe, maybe this, this whole thing of the cross was a complete accident, a mistake. He got caught in the cosmic cogs of, of both the, the religious elite of his day and the political power of Rome, and it was, a, it was a, an accident, and John 3.16 reminds us, no, this is, this is God's plan. This is going according to God's plan. And you go back to the very beginning of the Bible and you start seeing it unfold. You get to the opening pages in a place like John, Genesis 3.15. 
And you read that God gives a word of promise about this coming son. All we know, it's going to be one of Eve's descendants, one who would crush the enemy's head. And then a little later in chapter 12, we find out it's going to be one of Abraham's descendants. And one of his descendants is going to bring blessing to all the families of the world. And then you keep reading, you find out he's going to be a king. He's going to come from this tribe called Judah, one of Jacob's sons. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read that, that he's going to be one of David's son. And all of a sudden, God starts talking about David's son in a way that we're going, what's going on here? He says, David, you're going to have a son who's going to be a king forever. He's going to set up an eternal king that will never end. And your son is going to be my son. I'm going to call him my son. You know, oh, okay. And then you get to the prophets, and the prophets start talking about this coming king, this promised savior. And all of a sudden, it's a different kind of a picture. And Isaiah picks up the brush, and he starts painting a picture. And all of a sudden, it's a picture of... uh, A grotesque, disfigured, marred, not a beautiful Savior. One who's pierced and bloodied and wounded and crushed for our sin. One who would be a suffering servant, not a conquering king. And we read in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, these words. Isaiah writes, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. You see that? It was the Lord's will. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, this promised Savior, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Speaking of Christ's resurrection. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. And again in Acts chapter 4 The disciples say this, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Listen, they did what your power and what your will had decided beforehand should happen. When John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, it's reminding us that this was God's plan before creation began. It was his plan. And it demonstrated his love. Now we have a phrase. It goes like this. Talk is cheap. What do we mean by that? That it's easy to say words, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you mean what you say. You can say one thing and do another. Talk is cheap. So we say, show me the money. Walk your talk. God doesn't just tell us that he loves us. He shows it. He demonstrates it through the giving of his son. So we read in Romans chapter 5, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This love is out of this world. It's not what we expect. A God to give his son for us. We expect the opposite. We expect what happened two weeks ago tomorrow in Virginia when 66-year-old Thomas Vanderwood died saving his son's life. Thomas was a great man. He had seven sons, happily married, former Vietnam vet, flew in the military for 16 years, then a commercial pilot, was active in his church, his community. He was a coach. He was a mentor. And he loved his family. 
And if you saw Thomas, you probably saw his son Joseph because Josie, as Thomas loved to refer to him, was his 20-year-old Down syndrome son. And on September 8th, he and Josie were working out around the farm when all of a sudden, Joseph stepped on the cover of a septic tank and fell in the septic tank. Thomas rushed to his aid. A worker who was working on the house saw what was happening, ran in to tell his wife, Mary Ellen, to call 911. And then they ran out to the tank as well. And there was, there was Joseph struggling in this waste. And there was his dad submerged under it, holding his son up. And his wife and this worker trying to pull him up. By the time the workers get, by the time the rescue team got there, they pulled out Joseph. He was alive. Thomas was unconscious. He'd been under and in that tank for 15 to 20 minutes. They rushed him to the hospital where he was pronounced dead on arrival. And his family said this about him, and it, that his favorite job was the one he did last, being a good dad. Giving the ultimate sacrifice for Joseph. And we go, that's right. That's what a dad does. We don't even think about it. We just do that. We just jump into even a messy septic tank and drown in it, lifting up our son. And the scriptures say that God did the exact opposite. Right before John 3.16, we read this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. What, what the gospel tells us is that God sent his son who plunged into this world like, like a septic tank. And that he lifted him up, not to save him, but he lifted him up on a cross to save us. And to be sure, this one and only son that the Bible's talking about is none other than Jesus Christ. You get to the end of John's gospel, chapter 20, verse 31. He says, look, I've written these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, this promised Savior, the Son of God, and that in believing in him, you'd have life to the full. That's who he's talking about. And that's what we need to understand when we read these words God gave his one and only son. So unlike ours. Now that phrase, one and only, is actually one word in the original language. It's a word that could be translated unique. Some of the older translations, begotten, only begotten son. It actually is the word, if you just transliterate it from Greek to English, it would sound like this, monogenes, from the same blood, from the same DNA. In the Bible, you'll read phrases about sons of God. Angels are called sons of God, and they're called sons by creation. We, God's children, are called sons of God by adoption. He adopts us into his family. But Jesus is the unique son of God. Just as 
humans beget humans and, and a rabbit begets a rabbit. God begets God. Jesus is God's unique only son. Unique because he's eternal. He's always existed. Christ doesn't become the son of God when he's born into Bethlehem's manger. He's always been the son of God. Chapter one tells us that he was with God from the very beginning, creating this whole world into existence. But he was the God man who took on flesh and lived among us. Fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, the son of God, Mary's son, without sin. Peter lived with him for three years. How long would it take somebody to live with you before they said, oh, guy's not perfect. She's not perfect. How long would it take? It wouldn't take a lot with me. It wouldn't take a lot. After three and a half years, Peter said this, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus, before his detractors, said, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He's a unique Son of God, the only way to the Father. That's what Jesus said. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. He's the one mediator between men and God. Here's what Paul writes in 1 Timothy. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Verse 6 goes on to say, the one who gave himself as a ransom. So here's my question. If, if a father today conspires to have his son killed, if a father today would raise his own hand against his son and kill him, and he were caught, we'd put him in jail for life and throw away the key. So what are we to, what are we to make with a God who would do that to his son? Is, is this a God that we should worship? Is this a God worthy of praise? Or, or is it true, as some have said, that this is cosmic child abuse? Well, when you keep reading in the story, you realize, no, no, it's, it's not that God, the father, ever hated his son. God's son, God's love for the son never stopped. His love for us demonstrated in the cross. His love for his son demonstrated when he raises him up on the third day, not allowing his body to suffer decay. And he shows and proves his love has always been there in the resurrection, raising up his son to new life, the conqueror of death, of sin, of the enemy. So why would God do that? Why would God have to do that? Did he have to do that? The scripture gives us some hints. The night before Jesus dies, he's in the garden. Maybe you remember that story, and he's praying. And what he's praying, and he prays it three times, is, Father, if there's another way, take this cup, this impending death, where your wrath is going to be poured out on me. Take this cup away from me, but not my will, your will be done. Three times he prays, three times he agonizes. He's sweating, as it were, drops of blood, the scripture says. There was no other way. There was no other way because we can't save ourselves. It's a hard thing to hear. It's a hard thing to say. But the scriptures tell us that all of us are sinners. That all of us are guilty of not loving God with our whole heart, of not loving our neighbor, which includes our enemy, as ourself, and 
Death is the judgment for sin. And we can't save ourselves. And the truth is, many of us have gotten out of all kinds of jams. We've talked our way out of tickets. We've talked our way out of near firings at work. We've talked ourselves out of some really tight spots in relationships with a parent, with a coach, with a friend. We've gotten out of all kinds of trouble and we get to thinking that maybe we can save ourselves. But I want you to consider this. No matter how rich you are, no matter how young you are, no matter how strong you are, no matter how much you've exercised, how careful your diet has been, there will be a day when you will face death and you will not be able to save yourself. And you and I know that's true. And if it's true of our physical existence, is it possible that there is something that the Bible calls a spiritual death, where there's an eternal part of our being that lives forever and that we could experience eternal separation from God and that you can't save yourself from that death either? The Bible says this, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us. We don't save ourselves because of good works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 puts it this way. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's why God would do it. Because he loves us and we can't save ourselves. And if he doesn't save us, we will die as condemned people. That's verse 17. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. God says, I didn't send my son to condemn people. We're already condemned. We're lawbreakers. We haven't loved God as we ought. We haven't loved our neighbors as we ought. We're guilty. And he doesn't want us to die condemned men and women today. He doesn't want us to die as a condemned student or child. So how does God do it? Well, he sent his son to save us. And how does Jesus save us? Well, he saves us by taking our place. That's what the cross is about. We deserve death. But Christ took the penalty of our sins. It's what, what we deserve. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. I'd never heard it until this week. Sinclair Ferguson says, isn't it interesting that at the end of Jesus' life, the two charges against him are, one, he's committed blasphemy. He claims to be God. And two, he claims to be a king. And so treason is the other charge. And isn't it interesting that that's the very two things that we're guilty of, Fundamentally of saying, God, I don't want you to be God of my life. I want to do my own thing. And we have been treasonous to God's king, Christ. We don't want him to rule our life. We're guilty of treason. And we have set up all kinds of gods, namely ourselves, but all different kinds of gods to serve us rather than worshiping God. And Christ, when he got up on the cross, he died for us in our place. This last week, we know something about paying off debt. Guess we are all a part of paying off AIG's 85 billion. Uncle Sam decided we as nieces and nephews have to pay up, right? $85 billion debt. It's a lot of money. You and I don't have that kind of money. 
And when it comes to the debt that we owe before God, we can't pay it off. But it all went on Christ on the cross. Everything that we've done, the penalty of it, the debt of it, all laid on Christ and he paid for it. But he didn't just pay for it. Here's the cool thing. He gave, he gave us and he gives us his righteousness. And so it's like, hey, I didn't just pay off the $85 billion, but I'm also going to put into your account now $300 trillion or whatever it is. Because I'm going to give you my righteousness, my perfect life. It's going to be infused in you through my spirit. It's going to cover you. You will stand before God and he'll see me. As I don't just take care of the debt, but I give you all my assets. That's what Christ has done. I was in the Starbucks on Friday. Guy goes up to the counter. He says, I'd like a roasted coffee. The guy behind the counter says, you know, it'll be up in about 30 seconds without missing a beat. He says, that'll be on the house then, right? The girl behind the cash register kind of rolled her eyes and said, yeah, on the house. And without saying a word, the little barista staff there was looking at each other going, oh, brother. That's how it is in America. We pay for our mistakes. But God says, "I I know of yours. I know all about them. All the things that you've done, they're on the house. They're on my house. They're on my son, Jesus Christ. The scriptures say God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's how Jesus saves And we know who he saves. He died for the whole world. But don't confuse that he died for the whole world means we're universalists. And the Bible's a universalist universalist teaching that says everybody's saved. It says, but those who believe in him shall not perish. Those who trust in Christ alone, that he died on the cross in our place, those are the ones who are saved, not those who are resting in their good works, those who rest in Christ's good work. That's what next week's all about. So I was thinking about a great gift. Arguably, the greatest gift ever given is God's giving of his son. So I was trying to think, well, what are some examples of great gifts that, that have happened here? And so what do, we, what do you do when you have it? You, know, you just Google it, right? Greatest gift ever given or whatever. And up comes the name. What do you think? Warren Buffett. Do you know that name? He's, he's a rich guy. I mean, a really rich guy. I haven't checked, but he's probably like the richest guy. Two years ago, he decided to give away his estate to the tune of $43.6 billion. That's a lot of money. 30 of it went to Bill and Melinda Gates' foundation, which goes to help uh, deal with the disease of AIDS and malaria and tuberculosis all over the world. It's, It's helping educate kids in our country and around the world dealing with issues of poverty. And it's a great thing. And I was just thinking, now imagine if you and I had um, been one of the recipients, maybe living in a little village in Africa, and we'd seen all the death of AIDS and malaria around us, and maybe our mother had been in a, bed, in a sick bed, ready to die, and, and then these resources started coming, and this culture of death and dying and despair got completely turned around. There's hope, and there's life, and there's healing, and there's excitement, and then we find out that the givers of these gifts are coming to visit us. And what would you say if Warren Buffett and Bill and Melinda showed up? 
What, what do you feel to, to be able to express your thanks? And what would we think if we read in the paper one day, yeah, and that's exactly what happened. And when Buffett and the Gates showed up to the, to the village, as they were coming to it, a band of people from the village came out with sticks and knives and clubs and throwing rocks at them. We go, what? this is nuts. Don't they know who that is? Don't they know how much they care for them? And yet... God's gift of his son, the greater gift in every way. A gift that just doesn't help some people for now, but is for the whole world forever. A gift that didn't give some of his assets, gave of himself, his own unique one and only son, is a gift that at the one hand is praised, and then we'll go through our day tomorrow and we'll hear people use Jesus Christ's name as a curse word. And we've got to ask ourselves, why is that? Why is the greatest gift arguably ever given in all of human history such a divisive thing? Have you ever thought about that you don't ever hear anybody take Buddha, Buddha's name, or Hare Krishna's name, or Muhammad's name, or Joseph Smith's name? You don't don't ever hear that. It's Jesus Christ. Why such a continental divide over the person of Jesus Christ? Why such distaste? Why such paradoxical reactions where we praise him and worship him and others would curse him? Well, here's here's one way to think about it. Jesus Christ is an insult to our feelings of we're good people. Remember the movie The Dark Knight? The Joker gives each of the boats remote control, and the deal is whoever blows up the other boat first, you know, you live. And he's counting that in this sheer moment of terror, somebody's going to do it. Remember that scene then where this big guy, this ex-con, grabs the remote control from this guy, this businessman. He says, let me do what you should have done a long time ago. And we're going, oh, no. Is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? And then he throws it out in the river. We go, yeah, we are good people. We don't blow each other up, or don't we? Every day on the news we hear of people blowing people up. And we know by just reading the newspapers every day, maybe we're not as good as we think we are. But Christ comes in, and he's the Savior for a world of people who the Bible calls sinners, and we're insulted by that because we like to think of ourselves as good people. You know, by God's common grace to all of us, there's a lot of good that is done. But when it comes to good in our essence at all times and all ways, our motivations, our actions, our thoughts, the Bible says that's not who we are. In verses 19 and 20, we read that Jesus comes as this light of the world. And the light starts to expose the darkness, and we don't like Christ because he starts shining into the cracks of our armor and exposing things that we'd rather not look at. So we don't want to get too close to that kind of a God. And by the way, we kind of like our life, kind of like how we've got it and how it's set up, and we like being in control of our life. Now, we all know control freaks, and we're convinced we're not one of them, but we know some, don't we? 
And the bottom line is, at the core of humanity's fallen condition is the desire to grab control of our life. And it's hard to relinquish control. And if Jesus Christ is God's only son who died on the cross, the king of all kings, then he has a rightful claim in our life. And a lot of us don't want to relinquish control. The thought of giving the keys of our life and getting in the driver's side and saying, you drive, God, you take control of my life, is hard. There's things in our life we don't want to give up. We think he might ask us to give up. But friend, let me tell you this. There isn't anything you're going to give up that you won't get back in spades. You get so much more, so much more. But we're afraid of losing control. Are we really that in control of our life? We're not. We're not. And there's another reason we don't like Christ and have distaste for him, and that is we've, we've created other gods that are our Savior. I call him a functional Savior. For some of us, our Savior's our lover. For some of us, it's, it's a powerful position that we're, we're in control of a lot of things and a lot of people makes us feel really good. For some of us, like Liam, it's drugs and alcohol. That's our Savior. For others, it's sex. For others, it's oh, all kinds of things. But remember this. There's only one Savior who's ever died for you. Only one who lives for you. Jesus Christ, God's Son. So what do we do with this kind of a teaching? Well, I think we need to make this connection. And maybe this will be helpful for you as you're wrestling with God not only needing to save us from, from the bad things that we've done, but from our thinking that we're good enough, that Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, he embodies the great commandments of loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. This is what it looks like. This is the standard. Perfect love for God, for even his enemies. When the Bible says, who can come into God's presence? He who has a clean who who has clean hands and a pure heart, this is what it looks like. This is the kind of life you need to lead if you're going to make it to heaven. You've got to love like Christ who loved at the ultimate point of giving up his life for you. And if we're honest, we would say, yeah, it's hard loving our our neighbor, even our enemies. Sometimes impossible for us. But if we're honest... Sometimes it's hard to live with the people we say we love. It's hard to love them. And sometimes the very things that we're doing in love are things that we're really doing, not because we love them and are seeking their good before ourselves, but we're loving them because it's really we're loving ourselves. It's all twisted up. And when we look at Christ and his love, all of a sudden we realize, oh my goodness, if this is what it takes to be acceptable before God, I'm sunk. I don't love like that. I don't love like that. And so our hope is that we would find God's love forgiving us, his love now living in us, that we might start living like that. And even when we fall short, we realize our standing before God isn't based on our ability to love perfectly, but it's based on that Christ did love perfectly, the Father in us, and we're resting our hope in Christ. And we've got to ask ourselves, is this a gift 
that we've received or like Liam, have we just thrown it away? Remember he said, people gave me Bibles. Every time I got a Bible, I what? Threw it away. And maybe you've been throwing this gift away. You've heard about it for a long time. And maybe today's the day you need to just open it up. What have you done with Jesus Christ? Have you received it? Have you opened it by faith? The scriptures say, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, along with Christ, graciously give us all things? You find it hard to trust God for the job situation you're in, the finance. Man, what just happened this week with the finances? Finding it hard to trust God for your future retirement and all that you've been saving up. Wonder if it's going to be enough, if it's even going to be there. Find it hard to trust God for this tumor that the doctor said is growing in your body. Finding it hard to trust God for some hard things that are going on in your marriage or with your kids or, or a kid who's far from God right now and, and going down a really hard path. Well, how in the world will we ever trust him for the lesser things if we're not trusting him for our very life? And he says it, just believe this. If I gave you my son, is there anything else I wouldn't give you that you need? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. God, you are our only hope for this life and the next. You are son, our only savior the only Savior who died for us that we might live. Give life today, I pray. Give faith to believe that this is true, that you gave your Son who dove into the cesspool, the septic tank of this world and our lives to lift us up and out up to you. And Lord, we pray that your love your my life for yours kind of love would be more the love of this place, more the love of my heart. To Lori, to the kids, to my neighbors, to my family, to the kids on the soccer team, to the people I meet this week. Lord, grow your love in us. This out of this world kind of love that would help a, a, a skeptical world believe that you are a loving God who gave your only son. We pray this in his name, amen.